Our Heavenly Father, we ask that tonight you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit as we open up your Bible and we pray that we would listen and we would obey your great word to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please sit down. Well, why is it that we keep on talking about sex? And by the we, I'm talking about the church. Uh, why do we keep talking about adultery and marriage and homosexuality and pornography and all those sorts of things? I mean, aren't there enough problems in the world to worry about what's happening in people's bedrooms? What about poverty or climate change or war or disaster relief or injustice or suicide? What about personal issues inside us like mental health and identity and purpose and meaning and all those sorts of big issues. Why does the church keep talking about sex? Well, if you've joined us today for the first time, you certainly might be asking yourself that very question. What have I walked into? Um, I mean, you've got to be thinking, I've walked in here for a baptism and now I hear all this talk about prostitution and infidelity. I mean, what is it with these guys? Why do they keep talking about sex? Good question. Well, let me tell you why we're talking about it today. We're in the middle of a deep dive into a book of the Bible called 1 Corinthians. It's 16 chapters long and we're going to look at it over 32 weeks to cover it in detail. We started back in October last year and after we take some breaks along the way in the holidays and other things, we'll finish it in September of this year. And the bit we're up to today, when you look at the break it all up and stick it next to the dates, it's the second half of chapter 6. And so our bit today in that chapter is all about sex. So is that the reason we're talking about sex? Well, that's one reason, but it's not the only reason. See, the reason that we keep talking about sex is because everybody else is. And more specifically, everybody else is talking about identity. And it seems that sex and gender is considered by many people to be at the heart of identity. And so if we're going to talk about identity, we need to talk about sex. And so if everybody else is talking about it, it makes sense for us to talk about it too. Which brings us to another reason that the church keeps talking about sex. And that is that God has said many clear statements in his Bible about sex. And those statements clash with our culture. The Bible clashes with culture. As you probably know, the Bible says that marriage is for one man and one woman exclusively for life and that sexual activity is to be reserved for marriage only. The Bible says it time and time again and so clearly there's a clash between the Bible and the world and the, the conflict just seems to be getting more and more intense. And that's why the, bar, the media will often talk about the church's view of sex. And that's because what the Bible says about sex is so different to what the world says about sex. And so if you're a person who listens to the Bible and believes the Bible and follows the teaching of the Bible, then you are on a collision course with culture. But it's not just individuals who are in conflict with culture. It turns out that our churches are in conflict within ourselves. 
churches are in conflict about sex. Some Christians think that the words of the Bible, when understood properly, still say what they've always said about sex and marriage. And that's my view and the view of most Christians throughout history. But some Christians today think that the bits of the Bible that condemn homosexual activity, for example, don't apply anymore. They interpret those bits of the Bible as being out of date and redundant, applying to another time of history, but not to today. And so to try and somehow be relevant to our modern world, some Christians think we should stop listening to what the Bible says about marriage and sex. And what's more, we who hold the archaic, old-fashioned, Victorian view of sexuality should ultimately be exposed as bigots and then silenced and then expelled. And so that's why the Archbishop of Canterbury, the first amongst equals in the global Anglican Church, has this week voiced his support for blessing homosexual activity and same-sex relationships and marriages. And a clear majority of the leaders of the Church of England agreed with him. So now they're going to publish prayers for Anglican ministers in England that will be used to say that sexual activity that's always been considered as sin is now blessed in a church. And over time, I expect that ministers who disagree with this will be pressured, either informally or formally, to comply to those prayers. It is a tragic week for the Church of England. And the reason it's so tragic is that those Anglican leaders who minister in England now, they, are, they officially think that it is good and proper to bless what God considers to be sin. And that is much bigger than sex. It's all about whether a person can trust the Bible. See, teaching about sex is related to trusting the Bible. And, that it, and so it really matters whether a person can know how to follow Jesus and why it matters. And so that's why we need to be able to know whether we can trust the Bible. Because if God has spoke, chosen to speak to us today through the Bible... And our church leaders have said, no, we won't listen to that. Then we've got a very serious problem. Because if people think that they can pick and choose which bits are true and which bits are not, which bits apply and which bits don't, then in the end we have no certainty about what God is saying. And that means we have no certainty about eternity. And that's why many Christian leaders don't actually think there's a heaven and a hell. They don't think that Jesus really rose from the dead. They don't think that prayer is anything more than just a conversation in your head. They don't believe in angels or miracles or heaven or hell and in the end they have nothing to say about anything that really matters. And so that's why the church needs to talk about sex. Because if some Christian leaders think that the Bible's teaching about sex is wrong, then how do they know that the Bible's teaching about God's love and forgiveness is right? If they've decided to be the judge of what God says, then how can anyone really know anything about who God is and what he thinks of us? The church needs to talk about sex 
because the church needs to know what to trust about God. We need to have this battle about sexual ethics because it's part of the greater war against evil and judgment and sin and hell. Because if God's word isn't clear about sex, then God's word isn't clear about salvation. But there's another reason we keep talking about sex. And that is that God's word on sex is the best word by far. In fact, God's word speaks of the best sex. God knows about sex because he made it. He made humans. And like the whole of creation, it was good. It was really good. And only he can be trusted to know how to use this good gift in the right way. And only he can be trusted to know how to recover from using it the wrong way. Because the Bible is trustworthy. And we can know what God says. And he makes it very clear that the death of Jesus brings true forgiveness and true peace with God for anyone who trusts in Jesus as loving ruler. The Bible makes it really clear that no matter what you've done, you can be forgiven by God, no matter what sin you have committed. And because we trust what the Bible says about sex, we can trust what the Bible says about salvation. Because we trust what the Bible says about sex, we can trust what the Bible says about forgiveness. And we know that we are saved and forgiven if we trust in the Lord Jesus. It really is that simple. But there's a final reason the church keeps talking about sex, and that is because often in the Bible, God compares our relationship with him to marriage. And in the same way that a marriage creates a remarkable unity between a husband and a wife, our relationship with God has all of that unity and more. And also in the same way that a marriage is broken by adultery, our relationship with God is broken by disobedience and sin. And that's why God's initiative to restore our relationship with him is as amazing, it's more amazing than when you have a marriage that you think is entirely destroyed and completely over and yet it, is, it comes back together and, and, and they reconcile and it's stronger than before and you say, wow, that is what it is like between God and his people and even more. So that's why the church keeps talking about sex. And that's the end of our introduction. So we need to start looking at the passage. But you'll be pleased to know that the whole talk won't be longer than normal. I've just packed a lot of stuff at the start. But before we actually get into the passage itself, we do need to go back a little bit and look and see what we looked at last week because it doesn't make sense if you don't see it in the context. The bit from chapter 6 ended with these verses. It said, Don't you realise that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy or drunkards or abusive or cheap people, none of these will be inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul has told 
the people in Corinth that he originally wrote this letter to, he said that people who think it's good and fine to indulge in those ten sort of anti-commandments, they are not part of God's kingdom. If there are people who love to steal from others or abuse others or practice homosexuality or commit adultery and they want to keep doing that and they love it and it, and it, it defines them, then they're kidding themselves if they think they're in the kingdom of God. You can't be both. But with that, Paul says, but you know, you guys, you were once like that. But now you are cleansed. You are holy. You are made right with God. You are, in other words, changed people, he says to them. That kind of immorality is in the past. But then he digs a bit deeper into sexual immorality by starting to quote back to them some things that they've said to him. They've kind of got back to him and said, yeah, but what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? And now, as we look at the passage today, he's going to say, well, let's go and look at some of those what about these things that you've said. Let's talk about them. And it kicks off here with 12a. He says, you say, I'm allowed to do anything. But not everything's good for you. Uh, these Christians in Corinth think that God's amazing grace is so wide-reaching, it means we can just keep on sinning like before. It doesn't matter what we do because God has given us a blank check. So you sin, write another check. Sin, tap your card. Sin, punch in a number. Pay the cash. Sin, it goes away. Or it just, just do it all the time. Keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. God doesn't care. But that's not the case. And it's the same thing that he said also in Romans chapter 3. You can't take God's grace for granted like that. But there's another reason. He says that some things are not beneficial. He says sexual immorality is not beneficial for individuals or for the whole community. And he says that in the next half of the verse, 12b. He says, even though I am allowed to do anything, you say, I must not become a slave to anything. In other words, even if you could just go on sinning like grace as a blank check, the problem is that sin will enslave you. Which is what Jesus said in John 8. He said, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. If we embrace sin, then sin becomes our slave master. Sin can become our slave master. You're not free at all. You're enslaved. And if you have ever struggled with an addiction of your own, an addiction to a particular sin, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, what it means to be a slave. Oh, I'm free to stop. Are you? You're a slave to that sin. Sin has bound you up like a slave in shackles. But what about this next argument, they say? Well, how about this, Paul? He says, they say to him, food was made for the stomach and the stomach's for food. In other words... What's food got to do with sex? Well, they're basically saying they're the same thing. Eating is a bodily function. Sex is a bodily function. And so whether you eat a hamburger or have sex with a stranger, it's just a physical thing with no spiritual meaning. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? But it's actually exactly what so many in our society will say. It's the kind of thing that's said on Bucks Nights when people get a stripper or a prostitute and the thrill of sex is just like the thrill of skydiving. 
It's just a physical thing like a roller coaster. But that's not the case. I mean, Paul is willing to concede that, that one day, he says, verse 13b, this is true, though someday God will do away with both of them, with the stomach and food. He says, but you can't say what you say about food about sex. He says, you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. Sex is not just physical, like eating. I mean, sex and dinner are both physical things, but sex is totally different to the digestive system, of course. And just because there's no real word from God about spiritual digestive activity, it doesn't mean that there's no word from God about spiritual sexual activity, because there is. They're different. They're not the same. We can't say our bodies were made for sexual immorality. It's just a physical thing, because sex is different to eating. There is something that is, that is very special about sex that makes it totally different to snacking. Which is what Paul says next in 13c. He said, they were made for the Lord and the Lord cares about our bodies. You see, when it comes to our bodies, bodies are more than just biological eating and reproducing machines. God made our bodies for him and he cares about them. And you know how much he cares about them? Verse 14, it says, And God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. He cares enough about us to raise us from the dead if we trust in him. And that means that in the same way that there was a continuity between Jesus before his death and after he was raised, so also will there be a continuity between us before we die and after we are risen. And this points to the fact that what we do with our bodies matters for eternity. Our bodies are not just some sort of container for our souls that you throw away. Our bodies matter. Our physical nature is important. So what we do with our physical nature matters. Don't buy the lie that sex is just a physical thing with no spiritual or emotional relevance. It is rubbish on both counts. But there's more. There's another reason why our physical actions have a spiritual impact. Verse 15a, he says, Don't you realise that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Now, this is pretty... Extraordinary. Let me see if I can unpack it for you. He's basically saying here that our body is a part of the body of Christ. That when you're a follower of Jesus, you are actually connected to Jesus in a real way. And so what you do with your body or what I do with my body actually has a real impact on the rest of the body of Christ. So when I sin, it affects you because we're all part of the body of Christ. And what's more, when I sin, it denigrates the body of Christ as well. You know, we go through life, we, we say, I just want to be an individual. I just want to be an island. I just want to be independent. But that is rubbish. It's a fairy tale. We are connected deeply to our community. But it's much, much more when you're a Christian. 
because we are connected to Christ. And so with all of this in mind, Paul gets to the bit where he kind of talks about the big, big issue, the big issue that's there that he needs to address and it's going to sort of be a bit of a wake-up call. It basically says, Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. I'd be surprised if a lot of you in this church, if I said, do you think it's great for Christians to regularly go to prostitutes? You'd probably say, ah, no. Of course you wouldn't. But something's got into their heads here in Corinth that they, some of them think, oh, you know, it's okay. It's like, really? Hard to imagine it, isn't it? But these guys are so messed up and their view of sexuality is so messed up and their view of the body of Christ is so messed up that they've messed this up as well. See, when a Christian goes to a prostitute, they join to a prostitute. Sex is not just a physical thing like just holding hands or, or kissing. Something spiritual happens when sex happens. And that is why it's bad for a Christian to visit a prostitute. And he goes on to say, verse 16, And don't you realise that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say, the two are united into one. See, when a Christian joins themselves to a prostitute, they become one flesh. The two become one. And it's a quote from Genesis 2, the, the very, very first marriage of Adam and Eve. The two became one. And so when a man has sex with a prostitute, the two become one. We become one flesh if we sleep with a prostitute. And because prostitutes have sex with lots of different people, then all the people become one flesh. And if one of them happens to be a Christian, then Christ himself is united with that prostitute and with all the other people. And you can blah, see how it's such a big, stinking, horrible mess. But it's even worse. Verse 17. It says, But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Uh, it starts with the word but, because it's actually saying, yeah, all of that but even more. It, it's a big deal for a man and a woman to become one flesh as a result of having sex. But when a person is joined to Jesus, that person is actually closer to God than their spouse. <laughs> By the Holy Spirit, a follower of Christ becomes one flesh and one spirit. We have an even closer bond with Jesus than with a spouse. And to think that a, a Christian would take that bond with Christ and join it with an unclean prostitute, it's inconceivable. So how do we deal with this? Run away. See, 18a, run from sexual sin. Run away from sexual sin. Run like you're being chased by a bull or an angry dog. Don't just walk, run. Run, 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 run. Don't risk it, run away. And whatever it is that might lead you to be tempted by sexual sin, do whatever you possibly can to stay miles and miles away from it. The theologian Martin Luther once famously said that if your head is made of butter, don't sit close to the fire. If certain people 
or places or devices or substances or situations cause you to be more open to sexual sin, then flee them. And if you need help knowing how to do that, speak with a trusted friend or trusted friends. You are not alone. There's probably many others who are going through the same temptations, even in this room. We're all in it together. We are the body of Christ, if you are in Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus. And my own experience is that when you share a struggle with a trusted friend or two, it's amazing the number of times they say, well, it's funny you mentioned that, but actually me too. And that can be such a beautiful experience to be in it together. But before I let us all off the hook too quickly, I want to give you 15 seconds of silence where you might just think now about one practical way that you can run from sexual sin today. I won't ask you to share it or say it or write it down. Just keep it in your head, 15 seconds. Well, there's a reason we need to flee from sexual sin. Verse 18b, and this is the biggie. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. And if you've thought about that, the reason we need to flee sexual sin is because it's more serious than all the other sins. Sexual sin is more serious than other sins. No other sin affects the body like this one. And that's because no other sin joins us to another person like this one does. No other sin makes a one flesh bond like sexual sin. And so this sin uniquely is one that is against our own body. And that's how we've got to run away from it. But that's not all. Verse 19. He says, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? That's interesting, isn't it? Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so when we defile or make unclean our body, we defile God. And that is serious. When we make our bodies unclean, the temple is unclean and God is unclean. And that's pretty serious. It's not like, yeah, who cares? No, not at all. It's not like we can say, well, it's my body, I can do what I like. No, 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 no. In fact, 19b and 20, the last bit of the passage says... You do not belong to yourself. You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price. And so you must honour God with your body. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've got to honour God with your body because it's not your body in the first place. Our body no longer belongs to us. The moment you become a follower of Jesus... You throw him the keys of your life. You sign your life away when you sign up to Jesus. You become a slave of Christ when you say Jesus is Lord. And it's no longer your body to do with as you please. And what's more, when you became a slave of Christ, 
it only happened because of a huge cost that was made. What does that mean? What does it mean when it says God bought you with a price? What is it talking about? It's talking about the price that was paid at the cross. The cost of the death of Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 1 puts it this way. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. What was the high price? It was the God bought us with the price of his son. It was the cost of the life of his son, Jesus. It was the blood of Christ, the actual bleeding of a corpse that was killed for you. The corpse that was treated like a criminal. The criminal who was sinless and spotless. The sacrifice who was the spotless lamb of God. We were bought with a price. And the price was Christ. So does God love you? You bet he does. Will he forgive you? 100% sure he will. Will he forgive your sexual sin? Absolutely, if you ask. Will he save you from hell if you've committed adultery or visited prostitutes or committed homosexual acts? Of course he will. God will forgive you if you ask. And that, my friends, is the beautiful, precious truth of the Bible. That's what we saw a bit earlier on. 1 Corinthians 6.11 Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Cleansed. Sanctified. Justified. That is the miracle of God available for anyone who asks. And so if you are a follower of Jesus and you have sinned in those sorts of ways, if you have said sorry to him with your heart, you're forgiven. And you'll say, oh, I did it again. And you'll say, did what again? I forgot about those things. But maybe you're not yet forgiven because you're not right with God yet. And you've kind of been holding on to all of this for such a long time. You're kind of not really sure if you were to die today or if Jesus returns tonight, whether you would be safe, whether you would be forgiven. And you're just not quite sure. You think, well, I'm not, oh, I just, I think I've done a pretty good, I don't, blah, blah, blah. Not good enough. Lock it away, sort it out. Get forgiven by God right now. now. This is too important. Don't put it off to tomorrow. You may not have it tomorrow. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you an opportunity tonight to pray a prayer yourself to God. I'll put the words up on the screen for you now. I'm just going to read them out so you can look at them and say, yeah, I reckon I'm, I'm, I want to sign off on those. I'm just going to read them out first. Don't pray them, just read them. Dear Jesus... Sorry for rejecting you and living in sin. Thank you for dying for me and promising forgiveness. 
Please help me to trust you forever as my king. Amen. If you read those words and think, actually, I don't know if I ever have said something quite like that before, but gee, I'd like to walk out of that door in five minutes' time knowing that I'm forgiven, knowing that I'm right with God, knowing that I'm cleansed by God, knowing that I'm forgiven by God, that he loves me, and when I die, he will say, my friend, and embrace you. You want to have that? I'm going to say one line at a time. I'm going to leave a gap the same length of time where you can say it yourself. Don't say it out loud. Say it in your head to God. And let these words right now, this very moment, be your words to God. I I recognise that most of you in this room have already said this before. That's awesome. But maybe one or two of you haven't, and this might be your night. Don't miss out. Let's pray. Dear Jesus... Sorry for rejecting you and living in sin. Thank you for dying for me and promising forgiveness. Please help me to trust you forever as my king. Amen. If you've just prayed that prayer for the first time, you are now certainly saved. You have certainty for eternity. You are in Christ. You are forgiven. You are cleansed. You are sanctified. You are justified. You are with Jesus. And if you've done that, this little response that we keep talking about, it's got a box at the bottom there that says, I prayed today to become a Christian. Do you want to let me know about that? Because I'd love to follow up you and say, hey, let's talk about that because that's pretty cool. You don't have to do this. You can just tell me at the door, but you might want to fill in that box and fold it in half and put your name in your mobile and we'll, we'll get in contact with you if you'd like. But regardless, if you prayed that prayer, you are saved. Praise the Lord. But how can I say that with such confidence? How can I say you are 100% saved? How can I make that kind of promise to you? I can make that promise because I know that 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is true. I believe that when you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Spirit of our God will cleanse you, make you holy and make you right with God. I know that is true. But I can only say that with confidence if I also believe that 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9 is also true. That those who indulge in sexual sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is why we talk about sex. Because we know that when we trust in the Bible, we find salvation. And this is why my heart breaks for the Church of England. The shepherds of God's flock have said that 1 Corinthians verse 9 is not relevant to our modern world. But in doing so, they have thrown 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 11 under the bus. If we can't believe what the Bible says about sex, we can't believe what the Bible says about salvation. That's why we talk about sex in church and whatever else it is that we're up to next in 1 Corinthians. Next week it's chapter 7 about marriage. But what we can do is know that the Bible is trustworthy. And so we can trust the Bible and we can trust the power of the cross.